Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brennan will be teaching out of the book of Genesis. Coming in from chapter 17 here, uh, Abram, Sarai at the time, taking matters into their own hands. We're getting old. There's no baby yet. What should we do? Abram, you go to Hagar. We'll take care of this ourselves. Warnings, warnings, sirens, right? Like don't take matters into your own hands. Okay, so they try to play God and then the effects of that uh, play out then and and uh, and we see though that God is God is faithful right and so uh, God uh, blesses Hagar and and God reminds uh, Abram of his promises he says you're now Abraham you're now Sarah uh, he says Abraham you're now your name means father of multitudes father of many nations Sarah you're going from contentious woman to princess I'm going to remind you of how valuable you are and and so he come, God shows himself to uh, Abraham then and reminds him and says, I'm going to fulfill this promise. I'm going to do what I said I was going to do. I paraphrase. And he says, essentially, in a year's time, uh, this is going to come to pass. And then, of course, he gives the, the sign of the covenant, which is circumcision, and so walks through that process, which is, uh, a, a, of course, a, a difficult and a unique process, but one that clearly communicates that uh, you are to be a people who are set apart and... Um, in that uh, you're set apart unto me. And so then we come into uh, chapter 18, and we, we see here that uh, it says, then the Lord appeared to him. And so here now, a little bit of time has gone by, and now the Lord comes to appear to Abraham again. It says he appeared to him by the cherubim's trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. So you get the sense that this is just sort of a, uh, I don't want to call it a, a lazy day, but it's like, man, it's the heat of the day. You're tired. Uh, they're, they're there in the tents. They're trying to shade themselves. And it says in verse 2, so he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the ground and said, My Lord, if I have now found favor in your sight, do not pass on by your servant. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. And they said, do as you have said. So here's what happens here. We, it, scripture tells us that the Lord comes to him, and it seems apparent here that Abraham recognizes him right away. It doesn't say that they were walking up. It doesn't say that they were riding up. It says that Abraham lifted his head and looked, and they, there they were. Now, who is they? One is the Lord. This is another pre-incarnate form of Christ. And then it appears that there are two angels with him. So three men here come to Abraham, one being the Lord, and then two angels. And we're going to see that the two angels are in fact angels as uh, at the end of this chapter, they are going to make their way down to Sodom. And so the Lord and two angels come to visit Abraham, and, and it says here that Abraham runs to meet them. I love this because we see here that Abraham is advanced in age. Abraham's been through a lot. Abraham has yet to receive the promise of a son through Sarah, but yet there's an excitement on the part of Abraham to see the Lord. As he looks up, he sees him, and he doesn't just, uh, th there's not sort of this familiarity, though Abraham is, ref Abraham is referred to as a friend of God, that though there is this, this relationship there that is in many respects unique to Abraham, I can only imagine what this interaction would have been like at this time as God was really birthing a nation, uh, that, that it, it didn't cause him to be uh, irreverent, it didn't cause him to sort of be like, oh well there's the Lord again. No, there was, a, there was an excitement. And I think for each of us, as we walk with the Lord for a period of time, we need to remind ourselves that we should always be excited to spend time in the presence of the Lord. It should never wane. It should never die out. And so we see here that he runs to meet him and he desires to serve them. 
okay? And, and, and it says that when Abraham lifted his eyes, and I, I can't help but wonder, what was he doing? Was he just tired there with his head hanging down? Or, or maybe was he, was he praying? Was, was there an aspect of him just meditating upon the things of the Lord? And, and so as he lifts his eyes, he sees them, and he, and he runs up to them, desiring to see them, desiring to serve them. But it also says that he bows himself to the ground. Now, this is interesting here because this is the first time in Scripture that we see this word. The Hebrew word here is shachah. And, and do you know what this means? When it says that he bows down before him, this is the word that's been translated 99 times through the rest of Scripture as the word worship. It's the first time we see it in Scripture, right here in Genesis 18. So he not only is excited as he lifts his eyes to see the Lord, he runs to the Lord and he bows down and he worships him. And I love the example that we see here on the part of Abraham. You know, Abraham had done many foolish things, no doubt about it. But also, if we, if we are not too hard on Abraham, I think that we could look at this and, and consider all the time that has gone by. And yet the promise hasn't been fulfilled. And... And in our own lives, how impatient we can be, how frustrated we can often get, how, how quickly we can seek to, to take matters into our own hands. And so again, to look at this and to see, man, this guy just loves the Lord and he's excited to see him and he's excited to be able to worship him. And I think to myself, Lord, if I, if I live to be 99, or how, I'm not going to live as long as Abraham did, I, I'm pretty sure of that, but... Uh, you know, my, my grandfather, he's, he's, he's six months out. Well, no, how far out is he? Eight months out now from 101. Uh, so it's like, well, hey, that happens, right? Um, that, I would want, that, that I would just be so excited still to worship the Lord. And so then Abraham, he hurries into the tent to Sarah. Sarah's in the tent. He, he was sort of on the outskirts of it. And he says, quickly, Make, make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree as they ate. This is pretty incredible. We don't get a great sense of how long this took, but I think in, if it was me and I was like, hey, bake three cakes and I'm going to go dress a cow, uh, that, like this, this is a big undertaking here, right? Have you ever had an unexpected visitor that you needed to entertain? I mean, and here it's the Lord. Like he runs and says, Sarah, God showed up. Make cake, right? Like this is kind of funny uh, in some respects. Uh, and so he's, he's just like, man, we got, we got to be, we got to serve them. And so he's hustling around and just making sure that, that, that everything is right for the Lord. And I, I just love his heart here. And then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And of course, the Lord knows, and I don't think God's being funny here in any respects, but I also kind of like, man, she's making cake. Like she's trying to get things rounded up here for this, this little interaction. And uh, Abraham, so he said, here in the tent. And then, and then just God just automatically here now goes back to Every time he shows up, he's reminding Abraham of his faithfulness. And he said in verse 10, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. So now the time is coming. It's, it's getting near this time that God had promised. And, and here he, he comes to visit Abraham. And he says, listen, I'm, I'm going to return to you according to the time of life. Your wife She's going to have a son. And Sarah was listening in the tent door, which was behind him. In verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. And so you get the sense here that even though the promise has been made over and over again, and even though at this point Sarah's probably still really struggling with Hagar and Ishmael and and everything that went down there, that maybe she's just sort of gotten to a place where she says, okay, it's just, again, it's just not going to happen for me. And in verse 12, therefore Sarah laughed within herself, saying, after I have grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? So she's saying, I'm old. Abraham's old. Are we really going to have a kid? Now, here's the thing. 
earlier, when God had reminded Abraham of the promise, Abraham, it said, laughed, but the, the implication within the original language was that he really laughed with excitement. That it wasn't so much a doubt, but it was just sort of like, seriously? Like, really? Uh, uh, but here, it seems as if Sarah laughs in disbelief. We, we understand that from what follows here. But notice this also. She laughs within herself. It's not that she laughs out loud, okay? She laughs within. She's sort of thinking inside. There's no way. And so the Lord being, well, the Lord, <laughs> he knows, right? He understands. He gets what's going on, even though she's kind of hiding behind the, the tent and, and eavesdropping a little bit. So the Lord said to Abraham in verse 13, no, she's not there, okay? She's not with them. She's laughed within herself, not out loud. And, and the Lord says to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh? Abraham's got to be thinking, like, I didn't, I, didn't, I didn't hear her laugh, right? But he says, why did Sarah laugh? Saying, shall I surely bear a child since I am old? And so not only does God know she laughed, but he also knows what she's thinking. He knows what's going on in her heart and mind. Here's the thing we've got to consider when we look at this, guys. Do you think that God does not know your heart? Do you think that he does not know your thoughts? Do you think that you can keep things from God? No doubt as you're sitting here right now, you're probably thinking, yeah, no, you, you can't, right? But in your day-to-day -day life, you, you, you operate that way sometimes, thinking that God doesn't really know, that God doesn't really know your heart, but He does. And so, in light of that, it's best that we are honest with God. Truly, I want to encourage you guys, be honest with God. And because what we see here also is that God does not condemn her Rather, he encourages her. I think it would have been better for Sarah, maybe this is speculation, but better for Sarah in this point to have come out from behind the tent flap and say, my Lord, I, can, I don't know that I can believe that. This just seems far beyond me. And I think it's okay when we do the same with God. When we say, God, I'm struggling with this. Let me go back a couple weeks ago. We considered this very thing with the gentleman in, in the Gospel of Mark who says, Lord, I believe well, help my unbelief. So, so then, God doesn't condemn her here. Rather, He encourages her. In verse 14, He says, Is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? This is really an important verse in Scripture. This is one that's easy for you to memorize, okay? Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too hard for the Lord? Put that away in your memory. Remember that one. And then He says, At the appointed time. I will return to you according to the time of life, and Sarah shall have a son. Here, God more than doubles down. This is like him, I mean, he's doubled down a few times over now and saying, this, I'm going to do this. You think you're too old? Who am I? I mean, and so guys, apply this to your own lives. Listen, this is a wonderful question that maybe some of you need to ask yourself tonight. Is anything too hard for the Lord? What are you facing right now? What are you dealing with in your life? What is it that you've been looking to God to, to fulfill? What, what, what thing have you been seeking Him for? What desire has He put within your heart that maybe you find yourself just going, I don't know that this is going to happen. I can tell you, for me, I mean, and some of it's the simplest things. Some of it's like, well, Lord, we, just, we can't afford a van. We just can't do it. And you think, well, it's just a van. What's the big deal? But it's like, well, no, this is something to accomplish ministry. And I just sort of think, well, Lord, I sort of had this vision. I thought that you wanted to do this. And, and, and even earlier today, there was a, when Toby's place first opened up, we wanted to get in there. We wanted to do stuff. We wanted to get involved. The fact of the matter is it wasn't the appointed time. It just wasn't because at that particular time, there, we could not have done the things that we wanted to do. It would have stretched the body too much. But in the last year, in the year of COVID, believe it or not, because we don't always see everybody, but we've grown. We've grown quite a bit as a church. There's more people involved. And so in this week, we, we, we recognize that, man, Lord, you're growing the church. And then we go to Toby's place, and there's some new leadership at Toby's place that basically just today, and I, and I hope I'm not getting ahead of myself, but, I, but I'm excited about it because they today said, listen, we want you involved. You're a healthy church in our community that the people here at Toby's Place really, we, they, they like your church, they want to be involved, and, and, and we, we just basically want to give you an open door. You come, you tour, and you figure out what do you want to do here? How do you want to be involved? 
At the very beginning, that was just not even an option. It literally was not there. You're not, no, it was closed doors. And I'm not faulting anybody, but that's just the way it was. And so here now, in the same week, God says, here, you've got the open door for ministry there. And oh, here, you're going to need this to transport people. At the appointed time. This has been on my heart for a long time. And there's times when I thought, well, maybe it's just, maybe I was just, you know, just dreaming again. But God does it because he's faithful. And so, and, and listen, that, those are just, those are simple and exciting things. But maybe there's something that's really big that's going on in your life. And you're thinking, I just don't know. And God would say to you, is anything too hard for me? And, and, and if you truly have an understanding of the characteristics and the attributes of God, then you know the way that you need to answer that question. Tell me, who is God? If somebody says, give to me an attribute of God, give to me a characteristic of God, if somebody that you met out on the street was saying, I don't know God, tell me about this God, what kind of God is this that you serve and that you love so much? What, what would you tell them? He's a miracle worker, okay, what else? Faithful? Promise keeper? What? He's love? A what? The creator? Patient? What'd you say? Healer? What else? Just? Amen? Sovereign? Personal? So you, do you believe all these things about God? Then be honest with yourself that sometimes though you don't act like it, right? And that's when we need to repent of that. We need to say, God, I'm sorry. I am sorry, God, that today I made you really small and convinced myself that these things that I'm facing in my life, that I needed to handle them and that I needed to deal with it or that I had to seek out some alternative because you just weren't big enough. Be honest with God about that and then go, oh, how foolish I am. And then rejoice in the fact that, oh, praise God that you are merciful and that you're gracious and that even though I'm foolish, you love me. Because you, and you'll never stop loving me because that's who you are. And, and then remind yourself of how great God is and remind yourself of the fact that Jesus himself said in Matthew 19, 20, uh, Matthew 19, 26, with God, what? All things are possible. That's the kind of God we serve. And so he, he, Sarah's not even there. He's not even within, uh, or at least she's not there looking at him. And he says, is anything too hard? I created you, Sarah. You think you're too old. He says, I'm going to do this at the appointed time. And that's the other thing. We've got to trust in God's timing and know that his timing is perfect. But Sarah denied it. So here's Sarah. <laughs> no, I didn't. I didn't laugh. Like, no. <laughs> he just asked you why you laughed and why you said what you said, even though none of that happened out loud. <laughs> but she says, I didn't laugh, for she was afraid. Okay, this is one of those moments where you're like, oh. <gasps> And he said, no, but you did laugh. And I love this too. Victoria says, a personal God. This is a personal God here. I don't know the tone in which this was said, but this is a personal God who's like, come on, you know what you did. But he loves her. And so listen, God knows your heart. He knows your struggles. He knows what you're dealing with and nothing is too hard for him. So rather than trying to deny what he already knows, why don't you confess it to him and trust him with whatever that thing is? And then know that at the appointed time, he will do what he said he was going to do. But he's also going to do it in the way that he will do it. And so we also, as we pray rightly, thy will be done, thy kingdom come, right? Or vice versa. That we say, Lord, however you want to do it. Your will, Lord. Not my will, yours. And so you surrender yourself to that. Now here's something, so at this point it starts to shift a little bit. It says in verse 16, then the men rose from there and looked toward Sodom. And it's, it's apparent here then that they have some other business to attend to as well. Uh, and so we start to see a little bit of a shift here. Something else is now happening that doesn't really, really tie to this first interaction. But I think from my perspective what we see here, though Abraham certainly has his moments and he makes his mistakes and he's not done yet he's not done making his mistakes we do see here a guy who is dwelling in the place that God has established for him he is seeking to faithfully follow after God to worship God to be obedient to God and now our vision our, our perspective is going to shift towards one who really is kind of doing the opposite okay and so it says here that they then looked toward Sodom. So now they're looking down. They're looking south. There's some imagery there. And Abraham went with them to send them on the way. 
And in verse 17, and the Lord said, now what I think is happening here, and we don't know this for sure, but I think this is likely the Lord talking out loud such that Abraham can hear him. And so the Lord here, it seems, is, is saying, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am doing? Since Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have known him in order that he may command his children and his household after him, that they keep the way of the Lord, to do righteousness and justice, that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has spoken to him. And the Lord said, Because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great, and because their sin is very grave, I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry against it that has come to me. And if not... I will know. So what's happening here is in the first statement, the Lord again, I think, is kind of talking out loud here and really saying, should I inform Abraham as to what is about to happen? Now, what is about to happen? God is going to destroy Sodom. Okay, God, He is going to go down and he is going to unleash fire upon uh, the cities of the valley. And this is the area that we now know of as the, the Dead Sea area. Remember, it was very lush in the time in which Lot had pursued it, and now it is barren. It's desert, and it's filled with the Dead Sea. Um, so that's the area of Sodom and Gomorrah, and God's about to destroy it. And he's saying this out loud in terms of, should I tell Abraham what I'm about to do? And then he goes on to say, I've known him. Now, where, he, where it says in verse 19 that he's known him is translated best as, I, I know him as a friend. What God is saying here is, is I, I know this man. And he goes on to essentially compliment Abraham here by saying, if I tell him this, I know that he's going to tell his children and his children's children and so on and so forth. And he's going to give insight and instruction. He's going to let them know why, I have, why I'm doing what I'm about to do. And then he goes on to explain it then, saying the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great. The sin is very grave. Now, Sodom had previously been spared. I mean, remember earlier on in Genesis when the confederation of kings comes through and is kind of wiping out the different areas and then they come through Sodom and they take Lot and then Abraham goes on his mission and he gets Lot back, but he also gets many people back of Sodom. And then on his way back, remember the king of Sodom comes to meet Abram at the time, right? And he says to him, wow, you know, you were really victorious there. And, and basically he says, why don't you give me all the people Rightly translated, give me the souls and I'll give you all the worldly treasure you, can, you could ask for. And at that same time, remember, Melchizedek shows up. Jesus shows up and reminds Abraham of who he is. Right? Says, you, you know who you are. You worship the God Most High. And so he gives to Abraham strength in that moment of temptation. But ultimately what we see happen there is that Sodom doesn't, uh, fare as badly as they could have or as some of the other cities did. And so really, Sodom was kind of spared for a time, but now their sin has continued to grow increasingly worse. And as we'll see here, Lot, though he was, though he was rescued, he went right back into it. And in verse 22, it says, Then the men, so these are the two angels, turned away from there and went toward Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord. So the two angels now are going down to Sodom, and the Lord has stayed back, and Abraham is with him. And what we, what we see here in these following verses, really in verse 23 through all the way through uh, verse 33, so the next 10 verses, is, is a wonderful uh, an incredible display of intercessory prayer. Okay, there's different types of, of prayer. If, you, if some of you who are here for our study on prayer remember, there's, there's different ways in which we pray to God. Um, some use, uh, an easy one to remember is the ACTS method, right? Uh, adoration, so it begins with praise, and then C is confession, and then T, thanksgiving, and then S, supplication. Uh, that's just kind of a clever way for us to remember. There's different aspects to our prayer. And intercession and also supplication, both of those are very similar. The difference being intercession is really sort of I'm praying on behalf of someone, and supplication is really I'm, I'm begging, 
I am just, I am, uh, it, with every bit of my being, I am, I am begging God to, to do something. And so here we see a great example of intercession where Abraham uh, is, is, is interceding. He, he's trying to uh, appeal to God on behalf of another. And so in verse 23, And Abraham came near and said, Would you also destroy the righteous with the wicked? So Abraham's concerned because God has said, I'm going to destroy this city. And of course, Abraham right away knows Lot's in that city. And, and, and whether he's just thinking about Lot or he's thinking about Lot's family or he's thinking even about others that may be there that he knows of. Remember, he met some of these people when he went and rescued Lot. So maybe, he's, maybe there's a, man, he, he's pulled people from the fire as it were. And so maybe he's thinking about these people. He cares about these people. You could say that Abraham loves his neighbor. And, and suppose, he says in verse 24, suppose there were 50 righteous within the city. Would you also destroy the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous that were in it? Verse 25, far be it from you to do such a thing as this, to slay the righteous with the wicked so that the righteous should be as the wicked. Far be it from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now this is pretty bold in terms of how he's coming before the Lord here. Right, appealing to the Lord, and I, and while I'm not necessarily advocating, we, we take such a, a, a tone with the Lord. There is a sense here of Him boldly coming before His throne, and um, and I do think there's times when we can really uh, seek to appeal to God, especially if we're appealing on the basis of His promises. If we're coming to Him and through Scripture and to say, Lord, this is what You said. Um, in verse 26, so the Lord said, If I find in Sodom 50 righteous within the city, then I will spare all the place for their sakes. So God says, yeah, if there's 50 there, I'll, I'll, I'll spare it. In verse 27, then Abraham answered and said, Indeed now, now, now his tone kind of shifts because he's like, okay, God said for 50, but I'm going to start to push a little bit more here. And so now there's this sort of sense of, oh gosh, indeed now, I who am but dust and ashes have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. So he says, you're basically, I'm, I'm nothing, and I'm just appealing to you. Suppose there were five less than the 50 righteous. Would you destroy all of the city for lack of five? So he said, if I find 45, I will not destroy it. And he spoke to him yet again and said, suppose there should be 40 found there. And so he said, I will not do it for the sake of 40. Then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak. So again, appealing to God, Lord, please. Suppose 30 should be found there. So he said, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, indeed, now I have taken it upon myself to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 should be found there. And so he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 20. And then he said, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak but once more. Suppose 10 should be found there. And he said, I will not destroy it for the sake of 10. And so the Lord went his way as soon as he had finished speaking with Abraham and Abraham returned to his place. See, in this interaction, as Abraham, Abraham is, is interceding and as he's interacting with God here, there is a, 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 a humility that's, that's growing on the part of Abraham as he's appealing to God. He's aware of, man, I may be asking too much here, but, but this is important. Why? Because he cares about those who might perish. If ever there were an example to us as Christians today, knowing also that when people die without Christ, there is a fire that awaits them, we too ought to be pleading with the Lord on behalf of those who are lost, praying for their salvation and saying, Lord, whatever, whatever I can do, Lord, show me, lead me, guide me, give me boldness, give me confidence. And so, yes, when we go door to door, that can be a terrifying thing. Some of you may think, man, I don't want to show up on that Saturday morning because I don't like going door to door, especially during COVID and people are going to think you're weird and they're going to say, get away. And yes, some will. Some will say, buzz off. But others will open their door and they will welcome the interaction and you never know when you might have the opportunity to share the gospel with one and you've literally pulled them from the fire. And we need to have that heart for those who are perishing. Moreover, what we see here is that's God's heart too. God may have said, hey, their sin is wicked and I'm going to destroy them. But note here that God said, man, if there's, any, if there's 50, if there's 45, if there's 30, if there's 20, I won't do it. Because God doesn't want anyone to perish. If there's anyone who might turn their life to Him, God desires that none should perish, but that all would come to everlasting life. And so He says, you won't do it. Now here, certainly, why does He stop at the number 10? Well, I'm of the opinion that Abraham no doubt considered Lot. 
And he considered Lot and what we see in Scripture. Lot, his wife, his two sons, his two married daughters, and his son-in-laws, and his two single daughters, which makes ten. I think that Lot really did think that, you know, at least I know that there's ten. There's ten who are righteous that are there. And so he cared about his family's salvation. He couldn't bear the thought of them or others who might be inclined to turn to God of any of them perishing. Now in 19, uh, now, now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening. And this is, this is you know, this, again, this chapter is it's grotesque. Now the two angels came to Sodom in the evening and Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. When Lot saw them, he rose to meet them and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground. So it seems here Lot has a sense of maybe not necessarily exactly who these men are, but he gets a sense that, that these, are different, these are different kind of guys that are coming into the city. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them again, and he bowed himself with his face toward the ground, and he said, Here now, my lords, so he calls them lords, please turn into your servant's house and spend the night and wash your feet. Then you may rise early and go on your way. Now, here's a couple of things we need to see here. One, Lot has an awareness here that these are different kind of men coming into the city. So there's something here on the part of Lot that's different from everybody else, okay? And we know that, that Abraham thinks that, that Lot is, is righteous, okay? But here's the other thing. Lot is now sitting in the gate of the city. This is where business was conducted. Lot would not have had a seat there if he wasn't fully entrenched in the city of Sodom. Where did, when they came out of Egypt and they went their separate ways, what did Lot first do? He looked down to the valley that was green and was lush and he said, I want that. And he pitched his tent toward Sodom, right? It started with pitching his tent toward Sodom. Then from there, he moved into Sodom. Now he's in the gates of Sodom. He's, he's a leader now. He's in the midst of it. Guys, this is what happens when Christians, when those who, yes, are righteous, they're clothed in righteousness, but yet they find themselves entrenched in the things of the world. What we see here on display is the difference between a man who has said, I'm going to follow God, I'm going to sacrifice the things of the world, versus the one who says, I'm going to try to follow God and keep a foot in the world. That's what's happening here with Lot. And so he does know, as these guys come into the city, he thinks, oh no, I can't let the wickedness of this city overtake these men. But he's just as much a part of it in many respects. So here he tries to catch them early and to say, hey, come into my house, stay in my house. And they said, no, but we will spend the night in the open square. But in verse 3, he insisted strongly. He's telling these men, you have to come and stay in my house. Why is Lot so passionate about getting these men to come stay in his home? Because he knows how wicked the culture is. So they turned into him and entered his house. Now here's an incredible thing here that is easily overlooked. It says, then he made them a feast. Some people suggest here that it's Lot making the feast, and so his wife isn't all too happy that he brought these guys home that night. We don't know that for sure. And he bakes unleavened bread, and they ate. We don't hear unleavened bread spoken of again until Passover, but yet we see it here. Unleavened bread. What's leaven a symbol of? Sin. Right? A little leaven. Leavens the whole lump. And trust me, God has just declared, the Lord has just declared that, that the sin in Sodom is great, yet, yet Lot brings them in and he makes them unleavened bread. There's a sense here, if even a picture. And we, and we see this. Paul tells us about this in 2 Corinthians in chapter 6, in verses 14 through 17. And I don't have it memorized, but essentially what, is, what does Paul say? What fellowship does light have with darkness? But you see, Lot's trying to make that fellowship happen. But here he has an awareness of who these guys are. He brings them into his home. He's trying to protect them from the wickedness of the culture. And he makes unleavened bread, which I believe for us is a picture of here the, 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 the spiritual aspect as he brings these angels, although he may be unaware that they're angels at this time, into his home. There's a sense of this needs to be different. This needs to be separate. This needs to be sanctified. So, so there's an awareness, and this is all going to make sense when we get to the end of this chapter here, and we're going to move through it fairly quickly. It's going to make sense when, when, when then we learn a little bit more about Lot as he's living in this time, okay? Now, before they lay down, verse 4, the men of the city, and this is crazy, the men of Sodom, both old and young, all the people from every quarter, surrounded the house. And they called to Lot and said to him, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us that we may know them carnally. So Lot, excuse me, verse 6, 
went out to them through the doorway, shut the door behind him, and said, please, my brethren. Now look how, look how Lot's referring to them even. He knows these guys. He says, do not do so wickedly. Now what's happening here is, is, this is the, the intention here is, is homosexual rape, okay? I won't go into it any more than that, but that's absolutely what's being communicated here. And it's hard to fathom uh, the, the, the multitude of people coming uh, and to demand uh, such a thing. And, and, and so Lot says, do not do so wickedly. Now, and here's the other crazy thing. Verse 8, see now, I have two daughters who have not known a man. Now, on one hand, kudos to Lot that in this culture, he still has two daughters that are virgins. He's, he's try, it seems as if he's trying to do something right. He says, please let me bring them out to you and you may do to them as you wish. And that's where Lot lost me, right? Like, okay, it seemed like maybe there was some good parenting going on, but whoa, only do nothing to these men since this is the reason they have come under the shadow of my roof. I wasn't able personally, I've never been able to find anyone who can provide a reasonable explanation for why Lot does this. It seems as if everybody just sort of washes their hands up and goes, no, this is, in, this is inexcusable. Other than to say, it, it maybe seems as if there's this sense for him of, I know there's something supernatural about these guys, and I've told them I'm going to protect them, and so I'm going to do it at all costs. That's the only thing. But don't think for a second that I'm suggesting that that justifies it. It just seems here as if Lot's in a moment of, of panic. And so this is craziness going down. Now he does go, he, he goes out at this point to try and stop this from going down, so he sort of puts himself in harm's way. And in verse 9, and they said, stand back. And then they said, this one, them referring to Lot, this one came in to stay here, and he keeps acting as a judge. So you also now get the sense that Lot's trying maybe a little bit to sort of you know, impact some things. I'm not saying he's doing a great job of it, but they at least have the impression here that, oh, he's judgmental. As a Christian, maybe you've heard that before, as you've tried to influence the culture around you. Now he says, now, now they say, we will deal worse with you than with them. So they pressed hard against the man Lot and came near to break down the door. But the men, verse 10, these being the angels, reached out their hands, pulled Lot into the house with them and shut the door. And then, verse 11, they struck the men who were at the doorway of the house with blindness, both small and great, so that they became weary trying to find the door. So it's as if they put some sort of confusion upon them. It caused them to just sort of wander around aimlessly and, and try and figure out where they were and what they were doing. Now at this point, certainly then Lot has to understand, okay, I was right, these guys are some kind of uh, a, a special, right? And they're um, sent from the Lord. Then the men said to Lot, have you anyone else here? Son-in-law, your sons, your daughters, and whomever you in, have in the city, take them out of this place. So now the angels are saying, you've got to get everybody out of here. For we will destroy this place because the outcry against them has grown great before the face of the Lord. And the Lord has sent us to destroy it. Now look at what happens here in verse 14. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law who had married his daughters and said, Get up, get out of this place for the Lord will destroy this city. But to his sons-in-law he seemed to be joking. Two things that I think we need to see here. Scripture seems to suggest that Lot had both sons and sons-in-law. It was mentioned earlier, do you have your sons? Okay. It seems here he doesn't even go to his sons. And his sons-in-law who he goes to have, they think he's joking, and so it really seems as if they have no respect for him. And guys, what we need to understand is that especially with family, but any of those who are within our sphere of influence, that we, we compromise our witness when we keep a foot in the world. When we try to uphold God's standard, but it's not seen in our own life, then we don't have influence with those who we should have influence over. And, 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 and whether that's as, as parents, whether that's as a, a brother or a sister or an aunt or an uncle or in the workplace, we have got to be mindful of how we carry ourselves and the degree to which we involve ourselves in the things of the world lest we come to a place when we do need to pull somebody from the fire, the opportunity is there for us to witness to somebody, the opportunity is there for us to, to, to preach the gospel to somebody, and they don't want to hear it because they don't see it in your own life. Now that doesn't mean we're perfect. It does not mean we're perfect, far from it. 
But do we at least then have a pattern of going to people when we do screw up and saying, you know what, I'm sorry. And I have misrepresented my Lord and Savior Jesus Christ in my actions. And I want you to know that that was me and that was my flesh. That's not God, right? And, and I had to do that in the workplace. In fact, one of the things that caused me to want so badly to get out of corporate America was because I was on a consistent basis finding myself wrestling and struggling with really maintaining my witness versus allowing myself to just get sucked into the things of the world. And by God's grace, I did it well many times, and then there were other times where I failed, and I did have to go. I had to go to somebody, and I had to say, flat out, I blew my witness, and I'm sorry. And so here, those who he loves are going to be left behind to perish. And I would say that it is very much, to a degree here, on Lot's shoulders. And when the morning dawned, the angels urged Lot to hurry, saying, Arise, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, lest you be consumed in the punishment of the city. And look, and while he lingered, he lingered. I mean, it's been made clear what's going to happen, yet he's lingering. And the men took hold of his hand, his wife's hand, so they're literally pulling him out of there in the hands of his two daughters. So it's only the four of them that are going out. The Lord being merciful, not giving to them what they deserved. And they brought him out and set him outside the city. And so it came to pass when they had brought them outside that he said, escape for your life. Do not look behind you, nor stay anywhere in the plain. Escape to the mountains lest you be destroyed. Where was he told to go? To the mountains. Then Lot said to them, verse 18, Please know, my lords, indeed now your servant has found favor in your sight. You have increased your mercy, which you have shown me by saving my life, but I cannot escape to the mountains, lest some evil overtake me and I die. Many people say he was just a city boy here and couldn't hack it in the mountains. See now, this city is near enough to flee to, and it is a little one. Please let me escape there. Is it not a little one and my soul shall live? He's saying, let me at least stay somewhere in the city. Let me at least stay somewhere in view of this life that I've built. There's, it's a small one. There's not as much corruption there. And so there's still compromise. And he said to him, see, I have favored you concerning this thing also. So the angel here says, okay, in that I will not overthrow this city for which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the city was called Zoar. It's still around today, supposedly. It's by the same name. It's called, and it means a small place. And the sun had risen upon the earth when Lot entered Zoar. Then the Lord rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. And so he overthrew those cities, all the plain, all the inhabitants of the cities, and what grew on the ground. But his wife looked back behind him, and she became a pillar of salt. And Abraham went early in the morning to the place where he had stood before the Lord, and then he looked toward Sodom and Gomorrah and toward all the land of the plain, and he saw, and behold, the smoke of the land which went up like the smoke of a furnace. And it came to pass, when God destroyed the cities of the plain, that God remembered Abraham and sent Lot out of the midst of the overthrow, and when he overthrew the cities in which Lot had dwelt. <clears throat> We don't have enough time to get through the end of the chapter here. You can go home and read verses 30 through 38. Um, what transpires there is also pretty troubling. And I'll just paraphrase or summarize that you know Lot now, because he's afraid, he gets up and he makes his way now up to the mountains as they had told him to do before. He finds himself in a cave and now he's there only with his daughters and some things transpire. Um, including alcohol and drunkenness. And um, at, at this particular time, whether or not it would be, I guess, a true definition of, of fornication, it was certainly something that resulted based off of likely what was seen and done in, even in Sodom at the time. And, and, and so what continues to play out here is really the effects of the world. I mean, that, that's what we see on display through the rest of this chapter. And I think that's the biggest thing that we need to see here as we consider both of these chapters and as we start to close here tonight is you, you see Abraham and he's worshiping the Lord and the place that God had ordained for him. And even, even, even an aspect of the setting just kind of communicates, if you're a visual person like me, a sense of peace. 
And then you shift over to Sodom and you see the wickedness. And the fact of the matter is, guys, as much as it seems like an odd story there that we read about in Sodom, if we want to suggest in any way, shape, or form that the culture around us today isn't equally as wicked, then we're fooling ourselves. And it's not my intention at all to denigrate or demean uh, any individual who's going through some difficulties in life and who is considering aspects of um, you know, their identity and, and homosexual relationships and different things like that because I think as a church, largely we have failed to effectively minister to those, especially in the LGBTQ community. Um, I think far too many people uh, think that they can vote someone out of homosexuality through conservative policies instead of loving someone out of homosexuality and ministering to them. Um, but... Be that as it may, we live in a culture today that literally parades these things through our cities. We live in a culture today that defends vehemently the right to give yourself to a very promiscuous lifestyle and then to dismiss life as, uh, with just the convenience of popping a pill in the morning. I mean, over and over again, we can see the parallels. And yet we are in the midst of all of this, right? And so what do we do? And I think as we look at the life of Lot here, what we need to recognize, and cause, because listen, it says, Scripture tells us that he was righteous. So the implication for us is, the fa- is that Lot's a believer. If we, if we want to write a modern day parallel here, Lot's a believer. But he's a believer at the end of this chapter who's hiding in a cave, drunk and defiled, because in disobedience, he didn't flee a city when God told him to. And unfortunately, that's a life that didn't finish very well. And I think what we need to look at here, and I've got a number of references tonight that we just don't have time for, but one in particular that really just should hit home for us is in 2 Peter in chapter 2. And in 2 Peter in chapter 2, beginning in verse 4, Peter writes this, For if God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them down to hell and delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment, And did not spare the ancient world, but saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly, and turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah into ashes, condemned them to destruction, making them an example to those who afterward would live ungodly. And that's the reason that God tells Abraham about what he's going to do, that right there, so that generations would know and would understand. But notice this. In verse 7, and delivered righteous Lot. So it says here that he was righteous. So in the midst of all of this, God still deems him as righteous. And, 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 and go back to our studies on Sunday morning over the last few weeks. This is God's prerogative, that he can do just that. You see, Lot is one who, who went to the wedding, who, who those invited out in the highways and the byways and in the fields, both good and bad, invited them to the wedding and he put on the robe. So even though he wasn't one of the, the, one of the, the first, right? He was, he was one who gets pulled in and, and he says, yes, I'll receive that robe. He's one of the, the workers in the vineyard who showed up at the last hour but still got a full day's wage. That's God's grace. That's his mercy. But it also says here that he was oppressed. And so, so lest we, and look at the things that Lot was attempting to do. It seems as if the people that were there were there angry with him because he was judgmental towards them. It seems as if his daughters in the wicked culture, they were still uh, pure, that he was doing something right as a father. It seems as if he was trying in many respects, but we can all look at that and say, what are you doing there, Lot? And so it says here, he was oppressed by the filthy conduct of the wicked. Verse 8, for that righteous man dwelling among them tormented his righteous soul from day to day by seeing and hearing their lawless deeds. Then in verse 9, then the Lord knows how to deliver the godly out of temptation and to reserve the unjust under punishment for the day of judgment. You see, the fact of the matter is here, I think Lot, what we see was, as Scripture says, a tormented soul because he was attempting to, to follow the Lord and to also be in the world. And for us, especially in America today, I think we've got to be willing to say no. I... I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not going to seek to find compromise. I'm not going to try and find this, this, this place where I can sort of enjoy the, the pleasures of the world, but still maintain my, my witness and still maintain my faithfulness to God. And, and even when God is saying, get out of here, get out of here, and we're going, well, can I just stay right here? No, He says, get out of here. Go to the mountain. Be far from it. 
Now you might say, well, aren't we, supposed to, aren't we supposed to preach the gospel? What about the Great Commission? Yeah, we engage the world, right? We, I mean, we know that much. This is the last verse I'll look at here. 1 John, right? You guys know this. 1 John chapter 2, verse 15. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it but he who does the will of God abides forever. We see two men, both who knew the Lord, both ultimately who were deemed righteous, but one who stayed outside the things of the world, but still had an incredible impact as he interceded on behalf of people that they would be spared. And God used him, right? Versus one who damaged his witness, who lost his loved ones, and who really didn't finish all that well who through the, the fornication that happens in the cave gives birth to two nations that were then forever a problem to the people of Israel. And so there was consequences to his sin. It's very easy for us to see the difference between the two. And friends, we've got to be willing to say, yes, I'm going to intercede for the world. I'm going to plead for the world. I'm going to go after the world. I'm going to seek to, just like Abram did with Lot, I'm going to seek to pull people out of the world, but I'm not going to live in it. I'm not going to be a part of it. Amen? I've kept us long enough. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the way that it challenges us. Help us, Lord, especially, Lord, as, as we even consider it at the beginning, Lord, the opportunities we have before us as a church body to minister to our community. Lord, we've got great opportunity to do much for you, to bring you much glory. But, Lord, I also believe it's dependent upon the degree to which we remain free from the things of this world that our witness, Lord, our testimony would not be damaged, that we wouldn't be distracted, that we wouldn't be sucked into the lust of the eyes and of the flesh. Lord, help us to be a people who are truly set apart for your work, for your glory. And Lord, help us to be passionate in interceding for and defending and, and going after, Lord, those who are perishing. Do that work in us, Lord, I pray. Start first in our own hearts, Lord. May there be personal revival for each and every one of us. It spills over, Lord, into our homes, our church, and our community. Father, we love you, we praise you, and Lord, we ask you to do this work. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great, have a great night. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you would like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.